Today, we're going to talk about resilience, adapting, and career changes. We've all had those moments of uncertainty where we don't know if we should stay put at our careers or jump ship. And sometimes we don't even have that choice and are forced to jump. That existential crisis of, who am I now? Do I have anything left to offer? What's next for me? Or how do I get there? These are all questions we're going to talk about on our podcast with our guest, Maria Jadis. Maria is a design executive who has had quite the career in Silicon Valley over the past 30 years. She's had her own design firm, Hot Studio, for over 15 years. She sold it to Facebook and then went on to lead global design teams at both Facebook and Autodesk. And after all that time working with executives and championing design, she started to reconsider what her next career chapter was going to look like. Her journey is relatable, funny, and honest, and full of twists. And as you'll find out towards the end of the discussion, also a surprising turn. Join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Maria on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. Marie, I was recently listening to an interview you gave with the Informed Life podcast. Mm-hmm. And I want to read back something that you said, because I think it's a good place for us to start today. Okay. What you said there was, and then something happens to people in their 40s and 50s mm-hmm. when they start really questioning what's next for them. They're at the peak, and then they're going to go down the mountain. Some of them retire, some of them get depressed, and some of them go into different careers. They're starting to ask questions about what is worth doing in life. Why am I here on this earth? What can I do to support people, help people? You know, create a legacy that isn't about wealth and title. So I'm sort of curious, like, how do you think about yourself in that journey and where you're at in your own personal development? Yeah, it's it's so interesting being a person in their 50s. And when I was young, I thought, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I grew up with The Who, which is, you know, my generation, you know, by the time you're 50, you're going to be dead. What's the point? And then I hit 50 and I was like, oh my God, I'm 50 years old. What does this all mean? And then when I hit 55, I left corporate America and I went through this existential crisis. Like, oh, if I'm not a VP of design, if I'm not a CEO of a company, if I'm not working at Facebook or Google, who am I? And do I have any value in this world? Do I have anything to offer? For the first time, I kind of felt what ageism could be about, where you've lived this long life and you're still working in tech. And the average age of the people around you might be like 25, 30 years old. There's this real disconnect. I saw this at Facebook. And so I went through this like funk 
I went through this funk like, oh my God, if I don't have the title, if I'm not making all this money, what is my value? Are people going to forget everything that I've done from my past life? I was doing sort of the, the thing that you do when you leave a job, you quickly panic and try to get a job of the same title with the same amount of money or more. And I was finding myself that I was like, I was going through the motions, but it wasn't something that I really wanted. And then I, I came across, I went to a party where Clement Mock, who's kind of been a mentor to me on and off throughout my life, he kind of said, you know what, Maria, just think about your life. You have been working solidly since the time you graduated college in 1985. You've had two kids. You've had like this long career. What would it take for you to just stop? What would it take for you to just stop and not commit to anything for a year? Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? Well, it's fucking terrifying to actually step into that space where you are just stopping and taking stock of your life. And during that time, instead of like chasing another job, I decided to make a list of all the things that I wanted to do in life, but never got to do because I was either working or raising children. One of the things I came across is just sort of the gift of education and learning. And I started taking classes just to kind of like expand my base of thinking, lean on things that I I wanted to learn more about. And I took a class, a coaching class, more so so I can actually learn how to be a better listener. I had discovered all these years that I actually was not a very good listener. And when I took coaching, it really kind of exposed the thing that I really loved doing, which was not necessarily shipping product, but it was about listening to people trying to make their lives better, motivate them, inspire them, help them be the best version of who they could be. That unlocked a whole bunch of things in me that made me realize that if you just stop and ask, you know, what is the thing that you really love to do at this point in your life, it can point you in a whole new trajectory. And that's the gift of being older. That's the gift where you can kind of look back on your career and then look forward to the future and say, okay, who do I want to become? And I have really learned to love being a woman in her 50s. And I feel very inspired that I have a very long runway ahead of me. As long as I stay true to who I am and the purpose in life that I'm bringing right now to myself and for people around me. Maria, I think it's very interesting to hear you talk about being in this place in your life, being 58 and feeling like it's a, a place of power. Is there anything as you think about your life today, advice or guidance you'd give a younger version of yourself? And conversely, what might a younger Maria offer as advice to Maria today? Mm, that's a great coaching question, by the way. And, you know, in fact, now I am an executive coach and I coach a lot of people who are just either becoming leaders or are, you know, mature in their profession as leaders and everything in between. And what I'm constantly asking about 
from them or helping them understand is where are you now? Who do you want to become? And how do you step into doing things that are more in line with your purpose in life? I also help people unpack the difference between what they think career means versus what it means to kind of live a life. So when people have careers, they might be living in what we call the zone of excellence. This is a place where you love your job, you do your job well, you make a lot of money, you're supporting your family, and that is a beautiful place to be. But there's a yearning, there's something missing in your life. You're not necessarily feeling 100% fulfilled. You're missing being in flow. You're missing being in that state where you lose track of time completely, where you are massively creative, where you are just transcendent. And that's the zone called the zone of genius. And so I help people navigate between those two zones quite often, especially younger versions of me, in that it's great to be in the zone of excellence, but don't let that be a bounding box. Don't let that be a box of shoulds. I should be an IC. I should be a manager. I get that a lot. Like, should I be an, a manager? Because managers are more respected than ICs. Like, I get those kinds of things all the time about like, oh, my career needs to define who I am. Your career is, a, is just a, it's just a continuum. And it's important to do things that you're great at and excellent and aspire to that. But it's also important to listen to what are the things that are going to bring you to a whole nother level of creativity and possibility. And how do you integrate both of those things in your life so you don't feel like your career is a bounding box? So that's what I would tell my 40-year-old me. And then what my 40-year-old me would look at my 58-year-old me and my 40-year-old would say, damn, she is looking pretty hot for a 58-year-old woman. So I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> so I'm going to push on that a little bit. What would 28-year-old Maria say to 58-year-old Maria? Oh, wow. 28-year Well, yeah, my 28-year-old me would be like, "Oh, you're not dead at 58. You know, you're actually still going." The 28-year-old me would be like, "Wow, there is still a long runway ahead of you." You have so much more value. Being 58, first of all, you know, yeah, you're, you know, things are sagging. Your body is like, you know, getting old, right? But, but your brain is getting sharper and huh. you can tap into years and years of lessons and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so that is a gift that the 28 year old me would not have realized that oh, wow, you've lived a long life. And now you have this gift of wisdom that you can now impart on people downstream and not necessarily use that wisdom to dictate the kind of life that they need to lead, but more help them realize that the world is full of possibility if you look at it more expansively. The 21-year-old me would say, man, you just got to party more. <laughs> Is that what your kids tell you now? <laughs> My kids, I love being a parent because, boy, I, you know, I grew up in New York. I used to go see Rocky Horror every week. I did things when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. And I look at my 
you know, beautiful two kids here growing up in Oakland, California. And I just feel like I have so much more on them. They can't get away with anything with me. And they know it. They know that I have lived a life of adventure. Yeah. They're not going to ever really surprise me right now, which is the gift (laughs) of wisdom. You know, I get them. I get them. So in one of your talks, you discussed how the pandemic created a crisis and that crisis leads to redesigns. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it takes a crisis to shift us out of this fixed mindset? And in your talk, you discussed that this happens in society, but do you think this can happen at an individual level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I keep on asking people what the gifts are right now, you know, and first of all, psychologically, what happens when crisis hits, right? Crisis is the beginning of an ending. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really interesting is that you kind of, you have to hit the bottom before you can actually be open to new possibilities. So the world that we live in right now, you can have, you could stand the perspectives that things are just really fucked, right? I mean, we got climate change, we got racial inequity, we got an economic inequity and, you know, political division in this world. Mm-hmm. And you look at this and go, oh my God, we are living through the worst and the pandemic, right? But when you actually look at, if you think about the continuum of time, the Mayans and the Hopi Indians predicted that this was going to happen, that the world, the universe had to get to this place in order to reset. If you really look at some of the predictions, you can see that this is inevitable. This kind of crisis is inevitable because it allows the world to reset. Even like the first weeks of the pandemic when everything was shut down, everything, there was nobody out on the street. Did you guys notice all the animals? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they just kind of came back. Yeah. The animals came back. The birds were out. The air was clean. That was our signal. Mm-hmm. That was our signal. So crisis is inevitable and it's an invitation to redesign. It's an invitation to understand what's possible because we suffer both from a society and individually of living in our own bounding box. We have these false boxes we put ourselves in, which really hold us back. And so when the box is no longer there and you are completely vulnerable, you are forced to have to adapt. And so this crisis is such a beautiful reawakening for so many people. And once we come out of it, we're going to see a different world. We're going to see a different world. And I like to look at it much more optimistically. There's going to be a lot of bad stuff. But man, when I look at my daughter's generation, she's 18, I look at a generation that is so well-informed and so ready to step into a new way of being that it's, it just inspires me. So crisis is an ending and then there's a grieving process and that's necessary. But once you come out of grief and you get to acceptance, that's when you can search for meaning and have a rebirth. And that's where creativity gets activated in your brain. So this is a great, great, crazy time, but boy, I'm so inspired by what's possible now. 
Maria, talk to us more about that grief and how, in your experience, people can cope with the grief of crisis effectively. Yeah. So first of all, it's natural, right? So grief is a process that you have to go through. And it's the first stage of a transition. So the ending happens. And when I say an ending, it's any kind of change. It could be the birth of a child. It could be a new job. It could be the death of a parent. It could be the loss of a job. All of those constitute an ending of some time. And then we are wired to go through a grieving process to really honor what we're leaving behind, to understand that that is a moment where things are never going to be the same again. And so you go through this grief process, all the stages of grief, and depending on the event, you know, anger will come in, denial will come in, a whole bunch of emotions. They're part of the natural state of being. And you just, rather than preventing people from grieving, you just have to invited it in. You have to let them go through that stage. And then there's a beautiful book that I recommend to everybody called Transitions by William Bridges. And and he maps this out beautifully. So the first stage of the transition is the stages of grief. And then when you get to acceptance, as I said, you hit the bottom. He calls it the neutral zone. I call it, it's like you're laying in a coffin. Your body is laying in a coffin above ground and you're waiting for your soul to rise. And you have no idea how long it's going to take before the soul rises. And this is what William Bridges calls the neutral zone. And this is the point of deep introspection. This is the point where you ask yourself, who am I? What does this all mean? Who am I becoming? And it's uncomfortable to be in this neutral zone. But the good news is you will hit a point where eventually you will hit a point of clarity. Something will get triggered, your creativity will get unlocked, and you will find new meaning and purpose. And that's the third stage, which I kind of call regeneration and rebirth. And then you're you're climbing the mountain again. And then inevitably, there'll be an event and there'll be an ending, and you will be going down the mountain once again. And that's just the stages of life. And when I read this book, I was really at my low point. This is when I had left my job at Autodesk, and I couldn't understand why I was so angry. I couldn't understand why I was so, I felt so defeated and betrayed. And when I read this book, it gave me a clear understanding that this is exactly just the natural part of processing change. And it gave me the invitation to move into acceptance and possibility. Hmm. So I just want want to push on this for a second, because I think I agree with you, but you're sort of describing this world where we almost kind of careen from one crisis to another. Like we get into a situation and we kind of maintain that plateau and then something breaks and there's a crisis and now we have to move to another plateau. And I can imagine there's a way to reformat, reconsider these crises as learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. But I'm also curious especially with your coaching work now as you're watching other people as they manage this, do you think there's a way to kind of get ahead of the crisis and sort of proactively manage these transitions so that maybe they're not quite as upsetting or destructive or? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't define every transition as a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Because we, I mean, you know, just think about the span of your life, Bob, right? I mean, 
we have bumps in the road, right? Because mm -hmm. events happen in our lives and those events can constitute endings. There's continuums and there's endings. And every ending is the beginning of a transition. Now, in terms of crisis, avoiding crisis, I always ask my clients, what is within your control and what is not within your control? Because so much, we wind up trying to control things that actually aren't within our control. So I'm constantly reminding my clients to kind of reset and say, okay, what is really within your control where you can pre-plan, you can be very strategic, you can look at pros and cons, you can make choices, you can, you know, commit to action based on the facts and the story you want to tell yourself, right? So those are things that you can like plan, but then there are going to be things that you did not plan. That's when those things can trigger crisis, right? Like, for example, I didn't plan the CEO of Autodesk to step down. I didn't plan on having the new CEO basically tell me that he didn't really think design was going to be a priority. Like, yep. right? That's information. Then I have to make choices, right? What's within my control? I could choose to stay in a job where they're not going to value what I do, or I can choose to leave, right? Or sometimes in many cases, when you're in a VP of design job, you don't even get that choice. It puts mm -hmm, you out, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? And that could be within your control. You could have contributed to it. You have to take some responsibility. But there's a lot of things that aren't within your control. And so that's kind of the work that I do with my clients I have is I help them understand what their nature is, understand what their strengths are, understand what their challenges are and trigger points, and really help them move into spaces that are going to enable them to hopefully make good choices in line with their purpose in life. I want to jump back in time a little bit and talk about kind of the amazing career that you've had and the life that you've built. You started out as a designer, then you became a small business owner, started your own agency. And I want to hear a little bit about that side of you in the early days. I think a lot of people don't know this about me, but man, since I was in college, I really suffered from imposter syndrome. Hmm. So you might, you might not know that. I would have never thought that. Right? Yeah. But the imposter syndrome actually turbocharged my desire to be successful. So it's a healthy and unhealthy point. But when I went to Cooper Union, which is one of the top art schools in the, in the world, I always felt like I was the last person got picked. <laughs> I thought I was like, the, I was the last one on the, I was on the bottom. Like I slid in and I, and I felt that way for four years. I felt this deep imposter syndrome and also being a woman, mm -hmm. I was a tomboy. So I was committed to always like doing more equal or better than the boys. Like I, I, I felt this conviction even when I was in grade school and PS 48, I was like one of the first women to play softball on the boys softball team. Wow. But it was always like, you know, healthy and unhealthy, which is I have to do much better than the status quo in order to be seen. And that drove me. And so I graduated college. I got a job. 
in New York working for Richard Werman. Mm-hmm. And again, still deep imposter syndrome. Like I did not deserve to have that job. I'm not that good. And then he opened the office in California. That's how I accidentally wound up in California designing yellow pages. And I was the New York transplant. I arrived and I was surrounded by men who didn't really want me there in the first place. I didn't have a relationship with them. They felt like they inherited me. And then I had to work super hard, extra hard to be seen and to prove that I'm I had the skills and talent, but it was always driven by this desire to prove to people that I was much better than what they thought of me. And that, again, fueled me. That was a turning point in my life because I was 24 years old. They tossed me, oh, you can you can design maps, like as if that was like a side game. Like, <laughs> you know, like okay, yeah, we'll give her, we'll give her the map designing the maps for all of California and Nevada. They like tossed it to me, right? Yeah, because cartography is such a simple design yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so so that, so that then so I like then thrived. I became known as the map queen, but I also needed people to manage the scale and the velocity of designing yellow pages for California and Nevada. And so I kept hiring people to handle the speed to which we had to pump these things out. And the next thing you knew, I had like 20 people reporting to me mm-hmm. and I was like in my twenties. Wow. And again, it was like, I didn't feel like they weren't seeing me, but I was building my power. And what I discovered during that point in my career was I was able to motivate a team of people to believe in a mission, to deliver a high quality of work and have fun and support one another and have equality. Like I had this, I had women and men. I was very conscious of a blended team. Mm-hmm. Even one of the young women had a baby. I've always had her sneak the baby in after hours, wow. you wow. know, like I was doing stuff and that became my superpower. And I realized when I left the understanding business, I was so well regarded. And then I went on my own. I left the understanding business basically to travel for three months with my best friend. And then I came back. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. And that's when I started freelancing. And I kept getting busy. And then I just hired my friends to help me. And then I accidentally founded a company because I was busy. And I realized, oh, there are people that are working for me. And then, again, unleashing that power of bringing people together to create something great fueled my career. I would say that's the underpinning of how I became successful. And surprisingly, that was the thing that got me into coaching. Like I said, like I didn't realize I was like still on this, okay, I'm a CEO. I need Mm -hmm. to be five people, 10 people, 15 people. I got to beat the boys because I was like one of the only women CEOs in the agency world, but it was this constant push to have to be better and prove to people that I was worth it and I had something to show. But the underpinning of my whole career is this ability to get people to work together on a team and believe in something and aspire for something great. Yeah. It's really interesting and remarkable, Maria, that you've, that you kind of found that superpower early in your twenties, where you just said the ability to bring people together, inspire them and motivate them. And then you found these different ways of expressing it, you know, whether that was what you were doing 
at the understanding company or on at hot or your other jobs. And then kind of back now to your coaching, you found the thing you want to do. And then you found all these different ways to pursue it is really interesting. Yeah. And that's what I help my clients, right? I help them recognize the coaching world calls it the zone of genius, but Mm -hmm. it's like, if you can get to that nugget, those things that if you look at your career and instead of asking yourself about the job title, about the money you're making, about the size of your team, if you can look at your career more objectively and say, what was the thing that lit me up all Mm -hmm. these years? That becomes sort of the soil of who you can continue to become. And then like, all right, treat everything like a design problem, drink some bourbon, make a mind map. (laughs) And like, like, you know, I, I encourage my clients, like make it a mind map. All right. So I'm great at motivating teams. Put that in the center of the mind map. Where will that lead you? And, you know, I always say, Meredith, you'd appreciate this. Whenever we do mind map exercises, you know where it leads to? Where? Sex. Sex <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah. It always winds up on the mind map. There's Maria for you. <laughs> That's the Maria brand. So let me ask you this, Maria, because I, I think people on this podcast would be would be curious to hear is you did get to the top and you were a CEO of a very reputable design firm in Silicon Valley working on all these amazing clients. What was the decision to sell Hot Studio? Yeah, great question. And and I'm glad you asked that because, you know, first of all, running an agency is brutal work. It is brutal. And any kind of company at any size is so brutal. And it's it's almost like having children right. because suddenly yeah. you have dependents. Yep. And it's not just being responsible for the person you hired. If you truly are people-centered, you are thinking about their families, mm-hmm. you know, and you're making a social contract with them. You're saying, I want you to work your ass off to a very high degree of quality. In exchange, I'm promised to pay you to support your family and give you health insurance. It is a blessing and a curse. Right. When I think about Hot Studio, I I'm so proud of the people mm-hmm. who chose, they chose to come work at Hot Studio. Again, I've always had that imposter syndrome. Like I was always so grateful when somebody agreed to work at Hot Studio. Now we had a rigorous hiring process. You know that we hired only the best. Right. But to me, The fact that those people chose to work at Hot Studio, I was so grateful. And so I loved the team. I loved coming to work every day. I hated the constant stress. I hated the fact that it became a machine where, you know, our burn rate by the end of Hot Studio's time. And we survived three downturns, which were brutal, brutal. And of those three, I only had to lay people off once in 2000. Wow. But the pressure, the hamster wheel, where when we had like nearly 100 people working with us, including freelancers, the burn rate, and you know this, Meredith, right. it was $1.3 million just to break even every month. Wow. Yeah. Every wow. month. Wow. Okay. So that meant that we had to be earning at least $1.5, $1.7 million on average a month. And then you couple that with the, you know, uncertainty of the economy. 
when I was about 48, I started thinking about how long do I want to do this? Do I really want to live through another downturn and live through that stress? And I communicated this to the people at Hot Studio. I said, I'm not going to be 80 years old and run Hot Studio. I'm not going to do it. And I would tell my employees because they would always ask, one day, we're either going to sell the company or we're not. But if we sell the company, it's going to be for the right reason at the right time. And there was tons of suitors over the years, tons of suitors that came and wanted to acquire Hot Studio. And I just felt like every single person didn't get who we were and what we stood for. They saw an agency that can do this book of work. They didn't get our value. They didn't understand the culture. But when the Facebook opportunity came, I was close to my 50th birthday and I told the universe by the time I'm 50 years old, I want to do something different. Wow. And so, in fact, I signed the paperwork in March of 2013, and I turned 50 on February 2nd. Wow. wow. <laughs> it's such a big number for people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it was the right time. It was the right place. The reason why I thought it was a great acquisition was because... It wasn't death of Hot Studio by a thousand paper cuts. Mm -hmm. It didn't get acquired by another agency who didn't get our culture or the quality of work we were shooting for. Right. right? It was, we're going to be Thelma and Louise and go off the cliff. We're all <laughs> going to go off the cliff together. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I still feel like it was the perfect move because I was ready to do something else. Now, Facebook for me was no cakewalk. You know, I really suffered at Facebook personally, but I learned so much by being there. And it was right because the company got to like freeze in time. It got to go off the cliff mm -hmm. and not compromise itself. And everybody got a new beginning, whether they wanted it or not. Hmm. And my job at that point was to make sure whether somebody decided to go to Facebook or didn't go to Facebook that they felt that I took care of them. That was very important to me, that if you didn't get a job at Facebook, you got a shitload of money where you have time to rethink what you want to do. And so I really was very, very intentional. I designed that whole experience. That's an example of being in control. Mm -hmm. When you're saying, like, how can you plan a crisis? I did the best that I can to work with what I knew. And there were definitely things that came up that weren't in my plan that became crises. Right. But I did my best to plan to make sure that people landed on their feet. Wow. Let's talk about that planning piece a, a bit more because that is particularly unique about your career and your life. And when you talk about you know putting an idea out into the universe, you're really talking about being intentional and having foresight of, here's where I'd like to go. I don't know all of the details, but this is where I'd like to turn my attention. Are there processes that you've gone through personally or maybe exercises you've done with some of your coaching clients to help them cultivate that intentionality with their career and their life? I'll tell you what I did after I tell you what I tell my clients. So 
my clients, one exercise that I do with them is I do a lot of guided meditation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm actually studying to be a shaman right now. And I do a lot of guided, <laughs> I know, laugh away, laugh no, away. No, it's perfect. No, it's <laughs> absolutely perfect. So I do a lot of guided meditation. And one of the guided meditations I do is I lead people into an altered state of consciousness for future version of themselves. I get them to meditate into like really going to a location, you know, that your future version lives. So getting them very much aware of the journey to meet that person. And once they go to meet that person, what's the environment like? What's the mood like? What's the temperature of the air? Is it a house? Is it a cave? Is it a teepee? Like, what is the dwelling? Like, really get into and visualize what that future vision might be. And then I get them to meet the future them, the future you. And then I ask a series of questions. So I ask them to ask the future you a series of questions and for them to listen to the guidance from that future version of you. And then we spend some time with the future version. I guide them back to where they are in the room and we tap into that spirit all the time. Yeah, I did this exercise with a coach probably like 10 years ago. It's, it's still with me. It's so resonant. Mm -hmm. It is really, really profound to, to do that guided meditation. Yeah, and I have them write it. So once they come back into the room, I make them sit and write what they discovered. And then I have them describe it to me. And then whenever they're at a point where they're stuck, one of the things I will ask is for them to channel their spirit and to ask them, well, what would your future self tell you right now? Yeah, that's great. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, a large part of coaching is to unlock things in themselves that are going to give them the answers, which is what shamanism is like. It's just that we, we burn incense and clear spaces. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, you asked me about my plan. So I was always, you know, I, I like to tell the story because it's humorous, but it's true. I don't know. I had foresight as a young kid that I would plan my life in decades. I actually planned. I would tell myself, okay, I'm a teenager. What do I want to accomplish in my 20s? Okay, this is where you might want to warn children to leave the room. But, <laughs> but like, I just remember saying, okay, my 20s, I'm in college, I'm living in New York, it's the 80s, MTV is new. Yeah. I am going to work my ass off and really be great at my craft in college. I was going to be a good student, but I was also going to maximize the amount of fun that I could have. Because when you're in your 20s, you're invincible, I'm going to push myself, but try not to get killed by doing it and really like sleep with as many men as possible. I mean, I was like, you know, this is the, this is the eighties people, but it was like, you know, go to the clubs, dance. I just had so much fun in my twenties. And then when I hit my thirties, I got to California in my late twenties. And then in my thirties, it was really about career. Like, okay, I, you know, was, I think I was just at the beginning of, I could have been the beginning of hot at that point. I don't remember, but I was like, okay, I'm going to really focus on my career and work and lean into it and be wickedly successful. And again, like prove to the naysayers that I am, I am worthy. And I really busted my ass in my 
thirties. And then I met my husband in my late thirties. And then I, and my forties was all about children and family. And so, you know, I had two kids in my late thirties, early forties. And so that was where I really leaned into still building hot studio, but with feeling not, I don't want to say burden, but feeling the responsibility of making money and raising a family and making sure that I wasn't screwing them up. And then my fifties, as you know, was sort of like this new thing, which is okay. In my fifties, that was a big question mark for me. But then I can't wait to get to my sixties, which is I'm going to be like, I want to be more nomadic. My kids will be in college, both of them. And I can do coaching anywhere. And I want to be able to just say, let's go live in Italy for three months. So that's the future I'm leaning into, which is enjoying being older, but not too old to do fun things and be more boundaryless than I have been. So that's been my plan all along. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, so we've got one last thing for you here, which is we want to do this lightning round of questions, this sort of classic better one or two kind of questions. Uh-huh. Are you game? There's there's quite a few of them, but I think we'll get through them pretty quickly. They sure. start off easy, but then they get a little bit more interesting towards the end. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Coffee or tea? Tea. Morning or night? Night. Mountains or beach? Beach. Meditation or yoga? Meditation. Library or coffee shop? Hmm. <laughs> library. Library. Okay. Read or write? Read. Pen or keyboard? Pen. Book or e-reader? Book. Phone or Zoom? Zoom. iPhone or computer? Computer. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Speaking or listening? Ooh, listening now. Mm-hmm. Nice. Serif or sans serif? Oh, uh, sans serif. Okay. Human, Rand or e- humanist sans serif, to be oh, specific. specific. Okay. <laughs> Rand, Rand or Eames? Eames. Golden Gate Bridge or Brooklyn Bridge? Brooklyn Bridge. Words or pictures? Pictures. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Encyclopedia. Declaration of Independence or U.S. Constitution? <laughs> that's, that's a you question. <laughs> Come on, come on. That's a Declaration of Independence. Nice. Shakespeare or Einstein? Oh, these are getting tougher. Uh, Uh Einstein. Steve Jobs or Walt Disney? Steve Jobs. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Oh, they're both evil in their own way, but I guess I have to stick with Musk. Okay, Putin or Xi? Bob questions. Come on, come on. Reagan or Thatcher? Can I say Reagan now? No, I can't say Reagan. I can't say it. Thatcher. Okay, okay. Okay, Okay, this will be better for you. Eleanor Roosevelt or Jackie Kennedy? Roosevelt. Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Sandra Day O'Connor? Oh, Ruth. Okay. Pelosi or AOC? Pelosi. Mansion or apartment? Apartment. Backpack or suitcase? Backpack. Hotel or Airbnb? Hotel. Museum or concert? Museum. Together or alone? Together. Couple or crowd? Crowd. Okay, I got three left. Loved or feared? Loved. 
Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. The last one, here we go. Poetry or prose? Poetry. Very nice. Wow. So what, okay, let me ask you, what came to mind when I said those words to you guys? What story did you tell yourselves? I don't know if it's a story or just uh, a sense for your value system. Hmm. So what, what value system have you uncovered? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a value system that's very specific and it's a value system of a considered life. Hmm. Good answer. Nice. Yeah, very good answer. Very good answer. Yeah. yeah. You know, it seemed very consistent with who you are. So, I mean, which shouldn't be surprising, I suppose. Mm. But, and I think it's also interesting, the ones that you sort of questioned a little bit and weren't quite sure where to go. Yeah. And I think there's some of these that you would have answered differently 20 years ago. Maybe. I don't know. Like museum versus concert. Like, boy, those are totally different mental models that I love. Mm -hmm. I love those equally. That was a hard one. But yeah. And, you know, the, the question around Reagan in the 80s, I, I used to poster anti-Reagan posters in the middle of the night. Like I was like an activist, like anti-Reagan stuff all over California. But now it's like after Trump, they're all like, <laughs> amazing. They're, you, they're like I'm liking Reagan a lot better. It's terrible. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maria. This has been awesome having you on the show. Very much appreciated. Some great stories, some wonderful, wonderful insights. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us to listen to Maria Jadis. Now I've got Bob and Aaron with us to talk about what we thought about what Maria was talking about and what our initial reactions were. Bob, Aaron? Yeah, I really love that piece that she said. I think it was kind of towards the end there where she's clearly been able to look back on her career and identify this one thing that was so meaningful to her, which was helping and developing people. And that she now had this story she was able to tell about her career, about how she identified that one superpower, super activity, and then she'd found these different contexts in which to utilize that skill and that thing that she wanted to do. And so like, she was able to reconsider Hot Studio, her time at Facebook, her time at Autodesk, and now her time coaching. She saw that all through this lens of who she really was as a person and the thing that she really wanted to bring to her work. And that's an interesting really interesting thing for someone at my stage of my career as well to kind of reflect on what's that core thing that really drives me to do what I do and potentially how can I find other contexts in which to practice that skill because you know the reality of my life is really different once your kids are grown up and out of the house you know maybe you want to have a different lifestyle and so how can you like kind of fundamentally reconsider your career while holding on to the thing that's always been so meaningful to you I found it very interesting, too, that she couldn't really get to that point without making space for reflection. She talked about her friend who said, you know, what would it take for you to stop and commit to nothing for a year? And she said that was terrifying to her, which is something that I identify with because I like to keep moving forward and be active. And I think for some of us, we think about that pause as like, what are we really doing? Because we find a lot of meaning in our work and a lot of identity in our work. And if we aren't working, doing a thing, or we're taking a little break, you know, we're kind of entering the void of what am I doing? What's this about? But it creates space for a lot of new things when you give yourself that time to reflect. 
It's also giving yourself permission to do it, which I think is the biggest mm-hmm. part of it is, is the fear, right? Of giving yourself the permission to do something that's uncomfortable and something that you haven't done before, right? And I think when she says, you know, it's the gift of education and learning and how she learned how to listen better and, you know, unlocked a bunch of things for her that she didn't know that she had in her. It's like there was a forcing function for her to do that. And I think sometimes we all get very comfortable in the lives that we're living or the careers that we have, and we just kind of keep chugging along. And she took the leap, right? And I think it's hard for a lot of people to take that leap, but she did it and and she overcame it. She talked about jumping from job to job and like trying to find the same title, the same role, like the same amount of salary. There's a bit of like inertia and blindness to that where you know, if you don't hit the pause button and think about your life for a minute, you kind of just end up doing the same stuff over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, it's comfortable. You get caught up in the expectations, right? We have this kind of growth mentality that, you know, every year has got to be bigger than the year before. It's this very unsustainable trajectory, not at all consistent with how life actually unfolds. And I agree with you, Aaron. I think it took her a while to kind of come back and put that aside and say, no, this whole career thing's more of a journey. And it's going to have its natural ups and downs and ebbs and flows and to be okay with that. Yeah, which also leads a little bit to, I think, being a woman and being in the field that she's in. She also talks about imposter syndrome, right? And the conviction to be as good as the boys, quote unquote, which was healthy and unhealthy. And I think there's just these expectations and this pressure to constantly succeed, like you said, Bob, and constantly be improving and going at such a fast pace to try to keep up. So it's healthy in that it pushed her forward, but it's unhealthy in which it made her feel inferior. How have you dealt with that, Meredith? I mean, obviously you're a woman as well, and you've been in you know, senior roles in a lot of tech companies. Have you felt that or have you heard other female executives express a similar sentiment? Oh, absolutely. I think it can be you know, simple things like body language or gestures or how you respond or comment to something that, you know, like might come off as more emotional or more aggressive. And so I think there's kind of always this need to kind of check yourself a little bit before you go into these larger environments and just make sure that people are respecting you for you and not because, you know, you're a male or or a female. Yeah. It's interesting. Stylistically, you know, she seems to have gone this different tack which is she's she's very out. She's who she is, whether she's on stage or in the conversation we just had with her. It doesn't feel like she's trying to navigate and hunt some middle between not being too aggressive, but you know, saying things in a certain way. It doesn't come across as guarded. But what you just said is consistent with my observations and conversations I've had with my wife and my daughter, where it does feel like they feel very hemmed in. Yeah. And I mean, I was fortunate enough to have worked with Maria, right. And to kind of learn from her and learn how to kind of fight the imposter syndrome, so to speak. Right. And learn that there are other ways of being a woman in the workplace, so to speak. And I think Maria running her own design firm for so many years is she kind of showed the world and she showed the design world that she could do it and she could be on top, right? And so I think women like her are very inspiring in which, you know, personalities like her can go really far within the world of tech and within the world of design. And so I think people like her being able to come across as examples for women can be really important, whether or not you agree with 
her approach or not, right? I think it's important that she has an approach and she has a voice and that she's gotten to where she's gotten because of that. The imposter syndrome thing is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks because in some of my mentoring calls, it's come up a lot. I think until this moment, I'd sort of conflated the idea of imposter syndrome with a lack of confidence. I think now I understand more like imposter syndrome is like fundamentally feeling you don't belong. Like everyone around you is different and you're trying to match their behaviors. Yeah. Or like what you say, like, oh, is this interesting to other people? Is what I am saying as relevant as what other people could be saying? Or are people smiling and nodding at me in meetings because they want to be agreeable and not because they actually agree with what I am saying? I also hear sometimes, though, like people earlier on in their career saying, well, I don't know if I'm ready for management, for example. It's a conversation I had recently. Somebody saying, I'm not sure if I'm ready for management. I'm like, of course you're ready for management. What do you mean? Like, here, let me tell you the seven reasons you'd be a great manager right now. And that conversation she described as imposter syndrome, but listening to it, I actually experienced that more as a lack of confidence. And so it's not entirely clear in my head, but I think those are two different threads that are worth thinking about deeply. The issue of confidence is something I think you can find in yourself. Imposter syndrome is a response to the environment you're in. And that one's much harder to deal with. But I think it might be useful for some people to try to distinguish between those two. I really enjoyed how Maria was able to look back on her life and think about the decades and the themes of those decades. And then she was also looking forward about her life. So there's this continuity of thinking about life as a trajectory, as building towards something. And Bob, what you said resonated with me of, you know, this year's got to be bigger than the previous year, and that's not sustainable. I think Maria's not thinking about it that way. She's just thinking like, here's the themes, here's my focus. She talked about in her 20s, have maximum amount of fun, but working incredibly hard, which is a thing you can do when you've got all that energy in your 20s. In your 30s, focusing on building a career. And she said she wanted to prove that she was worthy. That was that time period in her life where she was building that confidence. She also mentioned in her 30s, working really hard. And then that was the beginning of building a family. And that was the big focus in her 40s. And in her 50s, there was this new thing. There was a series of crises of switching jobs and kind of not really knowing how to fit into these different points in the career change and then pressing the reset button and rethinking, taking that time off. And now she has this clarity of 60s that she wants to be a nomad. She wants to move around, but she knows that she wants to help other people and use the wisdom that she's built over these many decades to help others. Yeah, I've done exercises like this before because, you know, Marie and I are basically the same age in our late 50s. Maybe we'd still say our middle 50s, but getting further, a little further out there, 57. And it's interesting to think of it in terms of decades. I've done some exercises too where you just break your life into even thirds. And either one of those techniques, it helps you kind of see the longer threads and it helps you understand that the activities of your life change, that there are truly seasons to what's going on. I'm not saying it matches the natural seasons, but things change. And she talked, and I've also experienced this as well, is like your, you know, obviously your physical abilities change, your cognitive style changes. I don't think your cognitive style degrades, but it definitely shifts. Your energy level definitely shifts. And, you know, your priorities shift. Your family situation shifts. It's a lot of things moving around. What I loved about hearing her story and just the way you outlined the decades there, Aaron, is it it reminds you that like, oh, this is constantly changing. It's not going to be a straight path up. Next year is not going to be the same as last year. I need to be fluid 
with who I am and I need to be fluid in my identity and allow myself to change. And I need to allow people around me to change as well. As a parent, you see your kids grow because they physically change. But how often do you recalibrate your parents, you know, or are they stuck in your head and they're like persistently 52, even though now they're 81? Yeah, I think that was the big takeaway for me for this episode was being comfortable with change and learning how to be comfortable with change because things are going to change and you can't stop it. So you might as well try to embrace it and go with it. Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, We'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.